the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown podcast. I'm James Miller, journalist, author, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And in that end, we had quite the ramble chat on this episode, so I will just introduce the guests and get on with it. We had Professor Anand Menon, Director of UK and Changing Europe, and a couple of uh, fairly controversial guests, I suppose, people with strong opinions. First of all, Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk, regular on the Romaniacs podcast and author of forthcoming book, How to Be a Liberal. And we had Melanie Phillips, uh, Fleet Street legend, it's fair to say, um, often controversial columnist, currently a columnist for the Times newspaper. Two guests from opposite sides of the Brexit divide. They've both been uh, fairly strident in their views over the last three years. Um, but importantly, it's worth noting they both get on. I mean, they've been knocking around TV, radio, podcast studios for the last few years. So there was a lot to talk about on that front. Uh, come back at the end of the discussion for contact details because you might want to get in touch about some of the things that we talk about this week. Um, and I'll try and put a competition in there as well. So, uh, yeah, let's go. Now that we have left the EU, what do you take away from it? Um, what have you learned from the experience, Ian? Well, there's quite a lot in a way. I mean, for a start, I didn't know anything about tariffs and country of origin checks and things like that. My friend, um, my colleague Alex on Romaniac said something interesting the other day when they asked a similar question. And he said the thing that he'd learned is how badly politics breaks down when you don't have a sense that you're about to have another try. So, you know, in any general election, no matter how traumatised you are by the result, you've still got that part of you that's saying, OK, in four years, at least we get another shot. The moment that it became about something that was generational at best, that was fundamentally going to alter and stay altered, most of our approaches to politics broke down, I think, became much more tribal than we were otherwise used to. So I learned that too. And unfortunately, yeah, like I learned an awful lot about, about tariffs, which, you know, is regrettable, but was necessary for the time. Why is it regrettable? It's good to know more stuff. I mean, there was a point where I was, it was a Friday night, my friends were in the pub and they sent me a text saying, we're just down the road, come join us. And I said, I can't because I'm learning about the fish stock quota system. And that is the, the bleakest moment that I've had in my social life, of which there have been a great deal. Who's the winner from that? You now know about fish stock tariffs. And, and they, had been, they have spent the, money on beer. So unequivocally, they are the winners. Melanie, you, what did you learn from this? Well, as I've often said to Ian, I'm so incredibly old that I actually <laughs> remember the first EU referendum. Right. Um, and when Ian says, you know... The thing about this one is that we didn't get a second chance. Um, it was exactly the same uh, in the first one, in that it was a generational thing. If what he understood, in fact, bizarrely, we'd gone in and we were being asked post the event mm. whether or not we should be mm -hmm. in. But I was on the losing side then. Um, I voted to come out at that stage. It was the very first public plebiscite that I was able to vote in because I was then old enough to vote. Um, and I voted out for exactly the same reasons uh, that I've kept those. I kept the same view throughout. There was all for, for me. It was all about democracy and all about self-government. And at that time, we were being told it was nothing to do with democracy and nothing to do with self-government. Okay, 
we lost the argument. My side lost the argument quite substantially, as I mm. recall. Um, and we just put up with it. We understood it was a generational thing. We thought it was a disaster, and it was going to be an accelerating disaster. But we said, that's it. The people have spoken. We get on with it. Now, what changed? Well, I see these things not in terms of fish stocks and quotas, which no doubt is my... Um, is, is, is to my demerit because I should know about these things but I see these things in cultural terms I'm a kind of cultural, social issues commentator and what I took away or what I have taken away from the last uh, from those three and a half years of absolute agony during the whole Brexit uh, uh, debacle um, is or was that um, this wasn't simply an argument it was a division of a fundamental kind between two completely opposing views of the world. Um, and it's a division which, over the years, I've written about a great deal in other contexts, nothing to do with Europe, but to do with how people see themselves in the world, whether they see themselves as part of a specific Western and within that British uh, culture and cultural identity and national identity, or whether they and whether, therefore, they not only see themselves in that way, but they value those things and wish to defend them and support them, versus people who believe that all of that is not just out of date, it's morally wrong because it's somehow exclusive and it's racist and uh, it's xenophobic and the future lies in transnationalism, globalisation, however much you'd like to, or whatever you'd like to, to, to call it. And it seemed to me, um, uh, from my perspective, that you know I live all the time through um, in a society where I have the argument from the other side to me coming at me the whole time through all the instruments of the culture, uh, newspapers, uh, BBC, um, uh, the sort of on-dit of the cultural world, the intelligentsia. I can't miss it. I'm engaged with those arguments in my mind 24-7. But it seemed to me that the other side in the Brexit row had not been exposed to these arguments. They don't hear them because people like me don't have much access relative to them, to the culture. And so it came to them as an absolute shock that whatever it was, 17.4 million people should vote for Brexit. Like, where did that come from? This is an outrage. They can't possibly mean it. They have to be wrong, and we have to show them they're wrong. And this comes from a point of view which simply has not been exposed, as my side has, to the other side of an argument. I sometimes, argument. I mean, I find sometimes feel like we live in parallel worlds because, in my experience, I grew up with the Daily Mail, the Sun, the Express. Now, throughout that time, they have made exactly the cultural argument you're describing, partly on Europe, but partly in a much broader way on sort of immigration and so on and so on. So, of course, it usually feels, and I think to everyone it feels, as if you're sort of being swamped, as if there's this sort of greater power, greater strength, um, usually on an institutional level, an economic level, on the other side. And I think that's, there's something psychological about that. But I, I just can't understand the argument to say that those arguments aren't heard. I've heard them all my life and they are the ab absolutely dominant in the political print media but did you take them seriously before the 24th of june i mean in a sense there was an assumption that they were going to lose uh i agree could, but on the remain side i think there was a sense of complacency that you know 
that those arguments aren't going to prevail. So we we heard them, but do we ever think that they win? I I definitely agree that most of us thought that they they wouldn't succeed. But those arguments win quite often. I mean, we had you know Farage was there. You know, Farage was someone that we talked around about around the kitchen table when I was a teen, when I was still living at home with my parents. And, you know, the effect on the Conservative yeah. Party. You go back and you would and you would see that. Hang on. Yeah, what's well, not kitchen You're table that was young. That. That's true, um, but you're talking about something quite recent and, and very specific. You're talking about the rise of UKIP and the phenomenon of Nigel Farage, which I quite agree changed the entire atmosphere. But I'm talking about a general culture in which the general cultural assumption, through from anybody who uh, is is involved in 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 high culture, universities. Um, uh, the Daily Mail doesn't do high culture, for goodness sake. It doesn't do culture at all. But the assumptions are all globalist. They're all globalist. Okay. Well, you see, this is the thing. I don't even accept really that use of the word. I mean, you, you said before of this sort of rejection of, of the West and of Britain. I mean, to me, that is a very strange reading of history. Like, after the war, the Western model led by Britain, I mean, predominantly by, you know, John Maynard Keynes, and, and, but, but, you know, with America taking a very dominant role, was to create a fair rules-based order. And that was done through Bretton Woods. It was done through, you know, the GATT agreement that turned into the WTO. Mm-hmm. It was done through the UN. And it was done in Europe through the EU. And the idea was we're going to create this rules-based order so countries have the same incentives, even though yeah. it may the individually inconvenience rules. us. The question is which rules. And that, but that was a Western program no, and British-led. And so this, this dichotomy between well, that and Britain well, is one that I fundamentally don't accept. Well, under New Labour, uh, which itself was a reflection of a whole way of thinking which became normative, I think, gradually uh, through the education system over uh, several decades, um, the fundamentals of the British rules-based order, the common law, was, or to put it in a demotic way, make it up as you go along, was replaced by a European idea that what was good had to be codified. And we saw that develop through the whole rights of human rights, the whole whole, um, uh, uh, rise of human rights law, the whole idea that transnational institutions were the only source of legitimacy. I lived through debates with the entire history uh, uh, establishment, history teaching establishment, uh, in the this was in the in the eighties and the nineties, in which they sat around and said these were these were the great rows over the national curriculum, uh, and they sat around and said the idea that a culture that the idea that education is about the transmission of a culture we cannot have that anymore because our culture is fundamentally imperialist, capitalist, racist, and wrong. And we, therefore, have to teach children where they come from. And I sat through all that, and the, 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 whole, the, whole, of the, the whole of the history establishment was behind that. Didn't get them saying, you know what, the Daily Mail takes a different view. Guess what? None of them even read the Daily Mail, and if they did, they used it as <laughs> toilet paper. <laughs> I mean, that is a very that's sensible that's an image. For it. That's an image. Um, Anand, what does, I mean, what does this... <laughs> Sorry, I forgot what you were here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What does this exchange even tell us about the last few years? You know, Melanie sort of pointing to things that we've discussed before, which is the classic, was it about money and the economics Mm. or was it about identity, which we have been through a number of times on this podcast. Um, And also what seems to be a fairly fundamental disagreement um, within 
British society as currently manifested by Ian and Melanie? Well, I mean, there are two things, aren't there? It's not exclusively one or the other. I mean, the strength of the Leave campaign was they did both, is they did the money stuff and they did the sort of identity cultural stuff at the same time. And, you know, that helped them get together that coalition. But what this, this conversation shows is that this is far bigger than Brexit, isn't it? This is about values, about worldviews. To me, that's uh, true. Uh, and, and that's just how, how the numbers split, that this is about your sort of social values as much as anything else. They're the things that give away whether you're a Leaver or a Remainer. And one of the really interesting questions is, because now we have a governing party that has essentially built a Leave coalition, whether or not they choose to use those values issues going forward because mm. the great advantage that the Prime Minister has is that his values coalition is relatively unified whereas of course the Labour Party's values coalition is all over the place mm-hmm. well, the Prime yeah. Minister's values well no not the Prime Minister's own values the I would values put those, that word in quotation marks <laughs> but you know if I were him now you would trigger so to speak, these things, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd say, mm-hmm. let's have a big debate about the, the fundamental human rights that should be protected, and you'd watch the Labour Party tear itself apart over trans rights. It's an edit. Someone said something boring or illegal. You'll never know. What are the tells that will give us an indication of, of how this government slash Brexit, because the two are very closely conflated, mm-hmm. um, what are the tells that will, will point to how it's all going to play out? Well, to me, and you're all going to go, oh my God, when I say this, but Boris has already gone completely wrong because he has basically um, put his arm round the sainted David Attenborough and signed Britain up to an agenda which would bankrupt the country and is completely undoable by any standards, which is the whole uh, um, <clears throat> uh, Greta Thunberg memorial uh, programme. So what's the bigger picture there, that, that, that he is but not... But that's just one... That's what, if you ask me yeah. you know, what I would be looking for, mm. I'd be looking for somebody who says, I understand that, the, that real science uh, is, has been hijacked. And with that is the repudiation of reason, which is driving us all completely insane in the West. And I am going to stand for reason and for science, and here is the real science. Now, that would make me sit up and think, you know what? I got this guy wrong, and he actually understands this. Then, So uh, what the bigger picture there is that Johnson is, in fact, a creature of, you know, the establishment of pre-Brexit... He's a person who puts his finger up to the wind. Yeah, but But Melanie, if it's going to be meet my metaphor, if it's going to be chopped off, uh, he'll put it down again. I mean, on that, I mean, firstly, it seems to me that science has been hijacked by scientists on this. If you look (laughs) at the writings, but but secondly, that's true. That's true, and scientists have been hijacked by the fact they don't get grant funding unless they produce a certain view, which actually means that in the academy, which you are members of, and I'm not, you have people who cannot get their papers published, cannot get grant funding, get run out of the academy unless they produce this view. And there are many scientists who will say this. Some of them have been used as expert assessors for the IPCC. They have left the IPC because they've seen the fraudulent abuse of their own research and other research. They understand what's gone on here. This is like the Chomskyism of, of the right, isn't it? It's this idea that uh, people are sort of faking, but they, but it's just but it is a conspiracy. It, it is a conspiracy theory. No, like the, the data, are, I, I, I don't want to get lost on the climate change, no, but, but yeah. just the, the data is is so 
so wide, no. so deep and so consistent and no. so accepted by senior no. scientists from across the world no. that to claim otherwise it is, it is bizarre. You're simply ignorant, I'm afraid. Mm. You simply don't know. It's wide, certainly, but it's not deep. Mm. There's a very substantial body of scientific evidence to show that study by study is, is based on rubbish science. Post-science. Have you ever heard of post-science? I mean, it's a, it's a phrase. Have you heard of post-science? It's a phrase used by, or it was used 20 years ago, when this was not the thing it is now, um, used by some of the people who were involved in this. Post-science is you start with the idea and you make the science fit the idea because the idea cannot be gainsaid. That's post-science. That's what this is. But anyway, this is another argument. Yeah. This is obviously another I mean, argument. It definitely is. If you're it, asking hmm. me, you know, for okay. a, for yeah, a, maybe for it's a, a a sign that would be in the in the broader cultural sense. Yeah. Okay. Ian, uh, you know the same question, not about climate science, but what are you? What's next? What are you looking out for? What do you expect to happen? Uh, and particularly, I suppose, from a Remain point of view, what do you do? Um, so, in terms of what I expect to happen, is I think there'll be an awful lot of sort of chest beating and a lot of putting out sort of contradictory messages by the government over the course of the negotiation. But I suspect that in about 12 months' time, in those technical areas where he can get away with it and where people aren't going to be following too closely, Boris Johnson will concede not quite what he wants, but pretty, pretty close to, to what they're going to be going for. Right? And I think that there will, despite all of the noise that we'll get over no deal, I suspect that there will be a deal by the end of it. Um, by the end of the year, you mean? Yes, and that it will then have an implementation phase built in within it that means that nothing really changes for two or three years so that we can start doing this stuff. So actually, I think ultimately, I don't think that no deal will will take place. But, you know, put a red flag on every single thing that I'm saying right now because predicting the future is not a very clever thing to do at the moment. In terms of what happens to remain, um, I I agree, I don't quite agree with the parameters of it, but I agree certainly that ultimately we've been in a cultural fight wrapped up in a technocratic straitjacket, and that's where we've been for the last three years, and that's where we will continue to be for now. Now, what gives me positivity is, and one of the most pleasant experiences of the last few years, is the discovery of so many people who think like me and feel like me and have the same vision of the kind of society that they want to be in. Now, my side... I don't agree with the complete media control that you're alluding to, but I do agree that, like, social liberals felt like the wind was in their sails for decades, really. On my side, on the left, we felt like we'd lost the economic fight, you know, after Thatcherism, and we were winning the cultural fight. Mm. Um, And suddenly that gets stopped. And during that period, you don't really bother sharing your values that much or talking about them all that much because you're fine. Do you know what I mean? The the ship is sailing. As soon as you face opposition, suddenly you do talk about them much more. And once you do, you start forming alliances, groups, friendships, all of that, which ultimately builds up to a movement. That movement was based in this case on very, very big marches, online stuff, but also lots and lots of local groups, lots of informal meetings. Now, that network isn't going to go away. It will not stay in its present shape and obviously with the same form because the mission is lost. But it isn't going to go away and it's always very hard to predict the manner in which political movements suddenly judder out and have an effect. For instance, you know, the Iraq war marches didn't stop the Iraq war, but clearly we can see by the way that uh, Western governments feel reticent about entering into military conflicts now 
clearly we can see, I think, even in the Corbyn election, mm -hmm. that movement would have played a part. So you just don't know how it will shake out. Mm. But I do believe it will shake out. Now that that identity is there, the movement will stay. We just don't know the exact form right now. Um, Anand, in terms of what's next, uh, I believe there's a very excellent report called uh, What Next? Indeed. <laughs> Basically, you should read that if you want to find out what's next <laughs> from UK to Changing Europe. Yeah, uh, that's, I mean, that, that details the technocratic straitjacket, if you like. Um, yeah. Rather than the... I mean, there's a little bit by Paula Surridge, who's superb on the cultural sort of fight we're having. But uh, I'm, I'm not wholly convinced that the Remain side manages that well, because they'll need an issue, won't they? Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, you'll need to pin your flag to something. You can't just carry on amorphously meeting up and being liberal. But isn't that just a thing that you referred to just now? The government will ultimately find... And that it wants to cotton on to some of these cultural issues, and I think you're right in saying that. But and they could in, cotton in resistance to that is where this movement would possibly. Happen. Though I wonder whether the style of this government, uh, it'll just talk a lot. Might not actually do very much. I say we're going to launch this big mm. climate conference, but whether actually government is going to legislate to take measures. Uh, well, who are you? What are you called now? You can't be called the Remain because you know we're out. So are you rejoin? And if so, I mean, you talk about mm -hmm. the BBC. There's plenty of Remainers who really don't like the BBC. Yeah, yeah, although it's, um, it's odd how... constitutional reform. There's plenty of Remainers who would like Scotland to be independent. There's Remainers who mm -hmm. make the case that we should have stayed in the EU as a union. Therefore, Scotland and England and Northern Ireland and Wales should all stay in the union. There seems to be too many dividing lanes within your Remain... What are they called? Liberals? Is that what we call them? No, I mean, this is when we say that we don't know the form in which this stuff sort of works itself out. Of course, there is no name right now for what we're talking about. Liberals is, is the obvious closest thing to go for, but in lots of cases, that isn't a word that people associate with. For a lot of people, that's still strongly associated with what they see as neoliberalism, the sort of right-wing liberalism since the mm. 70s. And so lots of people aren't comfortable with the phrase. I think they're wrong to associate it in that way, but nevertheless, lots of people do. And you're right that there's divisions over things like Scottish independence. In terms of rejoin, I've been impressed by how restrained most Remainers have been on that issue. Because to me, the worst thing when it was clear that this was happening was, guys, don't call for that right now. Because you will just look like a nutter. It just, it's clear no one's going to want to have that conversation right now. You have to have some restraint there. And the, the, the doable mission for those who want to rejoin, I think the correct timetable is to say you'd want to be aiming for the Labour Party to have rejoining the EU in its manifesto, not in the next election, but in the election after that. But isn't that the big lesson of the last few years, that your side need a successful <coughs> political party? Yes. And that's also partly why I think it's hard to talk about this stuff until you know which way the Labour yeah. election yeah. shuffles out. Because if you've got Keir Starmer there, everything becomes much clearer. What, if you've got it, Rebecca Long-Bailey, I think if, things if become Keir less Starmer clear. If Keir Starmer becomes leader, what, what becomes clear? What, how, how you, you would have someone that you could look at from the Labour side mm. that you would say... But, this, what, but what, what would he stand for in this respect? I, I, I can't speak for him too strongly, and I'm aware that his rhetoric right now is rather different to the things he was doing when he was shadow Brexit secretary because he needs to secure the Corbyn vote with Point him. Taken, yeah. um, nevertheless, when you see the way that he operated, he is clearly pro-international institutions, not just the EU, but more broadly than Correct. that. He is clearly a liberal when it comes to the manner in which the law operates and protecting it from political interference, even though not all of his work when he was at, at the Department of Prosecutions was necessarily that liberal. And there is a chance there to do the big bridging work, which Anand referred to, or alluded to earlier, which is essentially bringing the socialist left together with the liberal left. What would you call them, Melanie? What, Remainers? The, the Remain camp. Have you got a, a pithy name that might sum up? Nothing that wouldn't be insulting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
the, the word losers comes to mind. Okay, that's fair enough. This is not helpful. Um, this not is not helpful no, at all. So all right, I, no, I, 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 I wouldn't say that. I mean, the thing that strikes me is that um, what we haven't really alluded to properly in this conversation so far is that what Britain is doing is really um, an extraordinary thing uh, because... I always thought that the reason why Britain went into the EU, or rather its precursor, in the first place was the demoralisation after the Second World War. It had lost an empire, it was bankrupt and in hock to, the, um, uh, to, the, uh, to, to, to America, and its governing uh, people thought that it couldn't go it alone. And that followed the end of empire. In other words, it lost an empire. And then it decided it couldn't go it alone, alone, and it joined another empire. Now, this is the first time, for a very long time, that it will have been neither a member, or rather the leader of an empire, or a member of an empire. It really is going it alone. And this, you know, we are, from wherever we stand, we are in completely uncharted territory. And now what, now what do we do? Yeah. We don't know. We have no idea. I would like to think that what I romanticise, I agree, I do romanticise it, but I think it's terribly strong still, is a particular British character, which is the character formed by an island nation, which for a thousand years has not been invaded, and which invented liberty and democracy precisely because it understood what it was to be a nation. Now, I believe that gave rise to a kind of character, a mindset, which is admirable, and which will fight to defend itself because it understands what it's about. Now, whether there are enough people like that left, I don't know. Just, I mean, I'm not a climate scientist, but I did study history. We were invaded in the last thousand years, repeatedly. The Dutch came over. Oh, come we had, on. They, they, got up they the sailed midway. up the Bedway. Oh, for goodness and sake. installed oh, um, William of Orange on the, on the they, It was throne. a landing. Then we had a, then we had a German king. We've oh, been loads of invasions. Nonsense. I don't buy this thousand nonsense. years. But, I'm, um, more, I'm more going to lightly point out that I do think the French have some claim towards liberty and democracy <laughs> alongside us. Well, there you see, that's why we are on different sides of the Brexit argument. I mean, if you, you can't pos- stand for liberty as opposed to Britain. Britain's liberty is, is or England's liberty, English, the, the oh, liberty well, based on the English point, common yeah. law. Well, I'm sure the English have you, developed English liberty, but you can't just, I mean, it, it is absurd to say that the English France created the concept of democracy. France in England. is an authoritarian society and its democracy is conditional. For example, it locks people up for endless amounts of time. Mm. Its f- idea of freedom is that it is codified. That is the crucial point. You don't. You don't get that because I understand that. I understand the constitutional distinction sense. that you are based, but that does not. That, I'm sorry, but that is a very narrow definition of what liberty is, and any definition of liberty which doesn't include the creation of the rights of man in in any context at all seems to me like the like idea, a tremendously restricted one. Created by a European ideal is the idea that was assiduously peddled as a result of the French Enlightenment, which was quite different from the English and Scottish Enlightenment. I don't think it is that different. I mean, if you look at like the influence that it had, or even the influence of someone like Descartes, for instance, would have had on John Locke. I mean, those ideas yes, are travelling yes, all over. So the, the, the idea that they're somehow but completely Voltaire, distinct. Is but it? Voltaire but we, we are got it off. right. He understood the difference. He understood that the English, English and Scottish Enlightenments were qualitatively different, and he admired them because of their idea of freedom, which was real freedom. They didn't have it in France. The French Enlightenment led through, I mean, this is, to put it mildly, a, a, um, a simplification, an oversimplification, but it led through to the authoritarian and totalitarian movements which came out of Europe. 
and which have which have infected us in Britain. How much does this represent the Brexit divide? Um, not that people are sitting in the pub talking about Voltaire. Lies. Sort of stuff. <laughs> they love it. But, they love it. Darling, only because you're at home that. learning about French <laughs> tariffs. Otherwise, you'd be in the pub talking about Voltaire. But, in my locals, I talk about nothing else. Uh, well, <laughs> um, whatever they are. Maybe I'm terribly out of touch. Uh, we'll just talk about, you know, I don't know, football. Yeah, I mean, you know, how much does this actually represent the the, the Brexit divide? Is it, is it, is it, that, is it as fundamental as these guys are talking about, but dressed up in sort of more day-to-day stuff? It takes us back to this issue of worldview, which is the term that captures this divide, because it's about how you see our history, how you see our present, how you see our people, how we relate to others. It is it is macro, and Brexit is a small part of that. As Melanie says, Brexit is a touchstone one because it just it is an issue that touches on so many elements of this mm. division from the history to yeah. your view of the outside world sure. uh, so I'm not sure there's another issue that encapsulates it quite as well but it mm. it is that that sort of cultural divide almost I should add I love Volta you know we are talking about here about some obviously fairly fundamental disagreements and yet uh, fair to say Melanie and Ian you know to some extent you're a double act it turns out um, touring, the latest, the latest, touring various studios together. Yeah, where the BBC's um, answer to Morecambe and Wise, if only they'd realise it. <laughs> but you clearly get on. So, are you to a good example of how to disagree well, and can you teach the rest of the country how to do it? Because maybe Anand can answer first of all. You'd agree that the country is not disagreeing well and has not done for the last few years. No, there's quite a lot of unpleasantness around. Yeah. Uh, so, absolutely. what can you teach us about doing it well? Well, I don't know. I mean, first of all, I mean, Ian's a really nice guy. And that makes a difference. Someone's terrible yeah. bitterness is being fueled by, on, on whichever side you're on, by people who are just unpleasant and they want to shout people down. Mm. They don't want to listen. So I think what... I mean, I speak for Ian, and I shouldn't be speaking for Ian. But from, from my point of view, it is so refreshing to find somebody on the other side of the argument from me, um, not just on Brexit, but what for Brexit's kind of... Is code yeah, for, yeah. who actually is prepared, as Ian is, to listen, to think, to be civil, and to open up a civil space of discourse. Because where I'm coming from, people not only will not have that discussion with me on those terms, those civil terms, they won't even be in the same room as me. They won't even be on mm-hmm. a platform with me. So it is very, very unusual from my point of view, given my political perspective and where I've come from, where I've now arrived at, to find someone like Ian. And the crucial thing is that what makes a civil discussion is that both sides have got to understand, both sides need to understand or need to have respect for Hmm. the other point of view. So um, I may disagree with Ian uh, fundamentally on many of these issues, but I am prepared to listen to him because I respect his views. That is to say, I don't have in my mind the idea that I am not only right, but unchallengeably right. Uppermost in my mind all the time, all the time, is the idea that I might be wrong particularly if you're pushing out the boat against what appears to be an orthodoxy. Mm. Am I wrong? I have to listen to what the other side is saying. I have to listen carefully and work out what I think. Now, the people who won't do that, in my view, who shout people down, who will deplatform and who will use insult instead of argument, what that says to me, apart from that it's terribly unpleasant and very Mm. frustrating, 
What that says to me is that those people believe that their views rest on sand. They cannot trust themselves to have the discussion mm. because they're so frightened that the other guy might be right and might destroy them. Now, why aren't I frightened that Ian might be right? Apart from that, I think he's wrong. That's, that's not the point. That's not the point. He's nice, I am prepared wrong. to think. I am prepared to think. When I have a discussion with Ian, I am prepared to think he might be right. In which case, it will not be the end of me. I will just change my view. Because I'm prepared to believe that he's right. Why am I prepared to believe he may be right? Because it won't destroy me. Now, the other side, not Ian, but people on Ian's side of the argument, it seems to me, are so terrified that I might be right. Because, and why are they so terrified? Because it would destroy them. Why would it destroy them? Because their entire moral and political personality depends on them being unchallenged. Mm. Because, and, because there cannot be another view. And I know that because I used to be on that side of the argument. Is there also something about uh, bad faith? In that you say Ian's a nice man, and we'll leave that for other people to decide. No, but, we um, should decide it right here around this table. <laughs> I'm, but, I'm happy to discuss that. But, um, <laughs> you know, you and I, I, this is not on you, but you know, both of you, you've obviously you've met, you've talked, and decided that you're both nice people. And is part of the problem that on both sides, too many people project bad faith on the other side. I mean, you say you're willing to accept that Ian might be right, but presumably you're also willing to accept that he holds those positions decently and reasonable, and he's yes, come to them I do by accept, a, I do, a, a, yes, a reasonable I, route, I, I rather than... That. People and I'm not saying not on you, but there's a lot people, of bad faith between the two yes, sides, yeah? Yes, yes, because if I could just talk about the people who, who won't argue in the way that Ian mm. argued with me instead they use insult deplatforming and all the rest of it um, it's more than bad faith um, it's more that they believe and I, I know they think this because I used to be like that mm. they think that I am evil yeah they think that I am beyond the pale, that I kind of will infect them almost. I mean, it's this idea that if you are a liberal, you believe in the betterment of humanity, and therefore anyone who disagrees with any of your so-called liberal views is not just wrong, but they're actually evil because they be- don't believe in the betterment of humanity, so they're, they're basically creeps. They are fundamentally existentially creeps. If they're opposed to me with my so-called liberal views, they're existentially horrible people who want to basically, you know, grind the faces of the poor, plunge the, the world into war, and basically tear up everything that's not in their own horrible self-interest. That's what they think, and therefore, it's not just bad faith. They simply will not have the argument. Is that what it says in your forthcoming book, Ian, <laughs> How to Be a Liberal? Does it say, believe that the other side are creeps and evil? No, not quite. So I don't, is, I, that, is that fair? I mean, there's a lot of bad faith going around. I think the trouble is, so we use the word liberal way too loosely, and there's certainly the culture that many of these just described. Why How to Be a Liberal? This well, so one of the purposes of it is to be more specific okay. about what it entails. Yeah, but it's um, really long, apparently. It, it is, unfortunately, quite long. Well, sometimes these things take a long time, you never think... There is a culture around what Melanie's just described, um, and it's particularly prevalent on... See, I associate it much more with identity politics on the left, but increasingly, I think, on the right. And the right has another way of responding to this stuff. And usually, I think it comes from this shrieking sense of offence because you as an individual are associated with the group that you found yourself in, whether it's political or racial or national or you know, gender, whatever. And so any 
insult towards the group, any objection to the group politics or even to the existence of group politics is necessarily an infringement on your own identity, which is where you start getting these quotes like, you know, they're questioning my right to exist or, you know, it's an act of violence by criticism. So I, th- I, I think that that culture exists. I, I don't think it's a liberal thing. And, and I certainly think that liberalism needs to have a better critique. Uh, that sort of leads on to the why, why one can get on. And to me, I just find it, it's very easy to get on with people when you think that they are genuine and independent-minded. Mm. The point where I think it becomes very difficult, and I, and I, found it, I, I found that politics has destroyed friendships for me where we are infinitely closer politically than me and many, although, frankly, any two individuals from any data set would be closer politically than we are, is because I don't feel that they're being genuine. It sort of goes to what you were saying. If I just think you're holding a party line, even if no party exists. As soon as you think someone is independently coming to conclusions and genuine about what they are expressing, they are worthy of respect and they're worthy of listening to. Oh. And, and um, how are we going to sort out the nation? Have you got... What? Because we've we've heard some, some by the end of this podcast decent uh, thoughts there on getting on with people and being nice to the other side and all the rest of it. Um, you are the impartial expert here, uh, and you know, well, does it even enter your thinking? Um, there's lots in what next about you say technocratic stuff and all the rest of it. Does it? Well, yes, but it enters is, my is, thinking. To I... what extent is healing? fixing society on your agenda well not healing isn't on my agenda I, some, I think actually that having yeah, good, I mean, healing I good uh, passionate debate is, is a good thing to be honest this notion that we should all come together strikes me as a little bit wishy-washy but I but do it's think it's important that's what no. needs to be healed right well, it's, it's, it's not well I mean you can't heal the se, fact that it's... people do things for for their own personal advancement or whatever, like towing a party line. But I think the crucial thing is we should listen to opinions and debate them. Uh, so we hmm. shouldn't just know platform people. We should be willing to listen to people. We should be willing to debate their ideas. We shouldn't be scared of people's ideas. Obviously, there are lines around what is legal and what isn't. But in general, I think if people are willing to sit down and discuss and debate their ideas, that is a good thing. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Let's finish with the feature. Interpret it how you wish. How do you? How? What can you recommend that will help me understand what okay, has happened? I would recommend the speech from Richard II, um, Act Two, Scene One, by William Shakespeare. Are you going to do it? Yes, I'm going to do oh, it. Awesome. Um, you have to re- bear in mind he talk- this talks about England as a kind of synonym for what we call Britain. Mm, that's a different but, issue. Yeah. Okay, so here it is, and this to me is what actually animates people who voted for Brexit. Um, it goes, uh, this royal throne of kings, this sceptred isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection and the hand of war, this happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea, which serves it in the office of a wall or as a moat defensive to a house against the envy of less happier lands, this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England. But doesn't that the next paragraph Brexit. say has gone to hell in a handcart? <laughs> this to me is that's <laughs> no, no, seriously. The, the, the next paragraph. The next, the next. There's always a next paragraph <laughs> in Shakespeare because yeah. Shakespeare was somebody who was a polymath and understood the human condition is full of contradictions. Hmm. But that speech is what animates the people I know who voted for Brexit. It is simple patriotism based on the fact that 
people feel themselves to be part of an island nation which stood for, uh, stands for a tradition which is something which they will die for. And you should watch Patrick Stewart do it on YouTube because um, it's phenomenal. Uh, excellent. That is a good recommendation, I think. Uh, Anand, let's go around the table. Let's go to you next. Put you under pressure. Have you actually thought of one this week? There's a really good book by Thomas Frank called Listen Liberal, which is I think you've done that one before. Haven't you? I don't know. Do we've, got the list. we've got the list. I mean, you can do it again if you want. It's ages ago. I well, I mean, sure. it's good. I think I'm pretty sure that was your first t- recommendation. Oh, really? Well, I've just reread it, so I might have mentioned All right, it you can have it But again. it's good. It's good for two reasons. It's good, one, because it talks about the dangers of some of the things we were talking about now. Essentially, it's about how the Democrats lost their working class base uh, by becoming sort of enmeshed in cultural wars between themselves and... You know, losing. I mean, it, it has lessons for the red wall seats here, mm. and it has lessons, I think, for the forthcoming election in the United States. Mm. And it's a good read about some of the problems of the <coughs> politics of liberalism. Fight, it might be juxtaposed nicely with mm. Ian's book. Ian, yeah. what have you got? I, On the basis that you're not allowed to recommend um, stuff. Leroy Jenkins. Has anyone heard of Leroy Jenkins? No. No. Um, it's a very early internet meme um, from World of Warcraft and there's all these guys, one of them's a wizard and one of them's the special person with the axe and blah blah they're all waiting outside this room they see a bunch of goblins in there and so one of them's just like, okay guys, so look I'm going to take the side walls, I need you to come up with some heavy armaments, I'm going to do this and one bloke at the back just shouts Leroy Jenkins and runs in, forcing everyone to follow him and they all get slaughtered. And in that moment right there, you've understood everything you need okay. to know about the British policy towards Brexit and why it has ended up the way that it has. Okay. Well, I think that's a good recommendation as well. Thank I like the fact much. we've gone from the, the full range of, of high, <laughs> sublime, <laughs> ridiculous high and low, low culture there. That, that works for me. Okay, I'm not going to comment on the discussions there. I'll leave you listeners to have your own thoughts, lots to digest, good, bad and indifferent, I think, which is, I guess, what you want from such a discussion. Quite the uh, difference from the previous episode in which we had three of the UK and Changing Europe experts talking about Brexit. We've gone quite the other end of the spectrum with two commentators who, you know, are expert in their own way. I know... Some people think journalists can't be experts, but I, as a journalist, would disagree, obviously. Anyway, if you have got comments about uh, the guests, about the discussion, about what sort of guests you'd like us to have on in future, get in touch. You can get UK and Changing Europe. They are UK and EU at kcl.ac.uk, and they are UK and EU on Twitter at UK and EU, and you'll find them on Facebook as well. That's also the details for this, the competition entries, and uh, this week's question is, um, you'll have noticed that uh, Anand did indeed recommend the same book that he had previously recommended in the series. Tell me on which episode did he previously recommend Listen Liberal? The list's all on my website, so go and find my website and you can find it fairly easily. Uh, or maybe you're just a loyal listener who has been here since let's just say the early days and you know the answer if so get in touch on those contact details and you can win a limited edition brexit breakdown mug that's pretty exciting also exciting is another episode of this brexit breakdown podcast which will be coming your way soon the music today has been the requiem for a fish by the freak fandango orchestra this has been the brexit breakdown from the uk and changing europe supported by king's college london funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Thank you. Goodbye.